Today is Sunday, November the 6th. Our message this morning is called Break It Open. You got me? Break It Open. You can turn with me to Matthew. You know, Matthew is one of those Gospels. It's beautiful. It's one of the synoptic Gospels, but Matthew has some things in it that really reveal the Jewish character of Matthew. One of the things that I was looking at this week, if you notice that some of the Gospels say kingdom of heaven and others say kingdom of God, you ever wondered why? Uh, they're synonymous, there's no doubt. You can see parallel Scriptures that, that show that they're speaking of exactly the same thing, but why would one say kingdom of heaven and the other say kingdom of God? Well, Matthew, in a Jewish tradition, reverenced the name of God. Have you ever met a Jew today that when he speaks or writes, puts hyphens in the name God, and for sure would never say the name Yahweh. This is because the law taught that you don't use the name of God in a frivolous fashion. You don't, you don't throw it out there just in vain. Okay? Well, Matthew, when he's writing, he uses heaven as what they call an evasive synonym. Everybody knows that God is in heaven, so when he says kingdom of heaven, he, it's understood he's talking about the kingdom of God. It was a respectful way to say kingdom of God. Isn't that neat? I love learning more about the culture. It always brings a vividness to the Word. It, it rarely ever changes your interpretation. rarely ever changes your meaning. But what it does do is it adds a vivaciousness to the Word. You understand the little intricacies of why they did things the way they did. And it adds something to your life. It's like seeing in high definition versus just watching TV. I have no idea what that really means. I don't have high definition. Y'all in Matthew, we're going to go to Matthew 11. Oh, now it works. <laughs> oh, come on. Break it open. Y'all in Matthew 11? I want to start, uh, I guess, in the seventh verse. You know what? Why don't we go ahead and start in the fourth verse? What we have happening is John the Baptist has come on the scene. He's preached repentance to the nation. He's been baptizing people with the idea you need to repent. The Jewish word for baptism or their ritual of baptism is mikvah. And they did this for a lot of things. But one of them was just for a ritual cleansing of purity. In other words, they understood there was something intrinsically unclean about them and they needed to be cleansed in order to be used for God's purpose. This is not all that unlike what John was doing. He was telling the nation, hey, the kingdom of God is near you. You need to get cleansed and get ready for instruction. And then Jesus came behind him. That's basically what he was teaching. We use baptism for all kind of things, and I've thought on it a lot recently because Diana just got baptized. Wasn't that awesome? Well, the nation was being prepared. This was uh, shocking for Israel, though. You know why it's shocking for John the Baptist to stand out there and tell people to be baptized? Huh? They were Jews. They were sons of Abraham. What are you talking about? We're already adopted as sons. What do you mean we need to do something different? We need to repent. This was hard for the leadership. They already saw themselves as righteous. They had no need to go cleanse again to receive some new teaching or some expounding upon the teaching they already had. But the people that did receive it were the ones that knew that they were dirty. They knew they needed help. This is why whores and tax collectors entered the kingdom ahead of the religious leaders. We need to make sure as long as we walk in Christ, as long as we're in love with God, that we never adopt an attitude that's superior. Never adopt an attitude that says, wow, I really have arrived. 
Our attitude always has to be one of a student, one of ready to learn, one understanding exactly what you've been saved from. I talked to a saint the other day on the phone, and she was telling me, Eric, I remember what I was saved from, so it's not hard for me not to look down on these people. She was teaching a Bible study, and some of the people in the Bible study had had very sordid past. You know, those that have been radically saved, when you were pulled right out of the filth into righteousness... You don't have any problem remembering what the filth was like. Now, it's like a dead person. It's somebody else. You're walking a new life. I've noticed that people that grow up in church sometimes suffer a little bit because they didn't get plunged as far into the grease. Uh, It's hard for them to relate to people that have. I thank God, not that I sin much, but now that I can love much because I understand exactly what I've been forgiven of. That needs to be our attitude all of the time. This will keep you from being too judgmental. It will keep you from pointing down at other people. Well, John the Baptist came. This was his message. He, if you ever wondered about this turn or burn kind of message, John the Baptist had it. You know, he had the turn or burn. He was the first evangelist in a, a manner of speaking. It's like, take out your lighter. That's hot, right? Not as hot as hell's going to be. You don't want to experience this. Come get baptized. But his ministry was only six months long. There's a reason for that. <laughs> you know, people will only tolerate so much of this. And it's necessary. God causes this in periods in your life. But this is not the predominant message of a Christian. People already know they're condemned. This world stands condemned already. It's our job to hold out hope. John the Baptist was ready to get people ready, though. Starting in verse 4, he's in a place where because he's in prison, he's having some problems. He's not getting to see everything that's going on, and he wants to make sure that what he set his hopes on is real. He says, uh, go back and report to John. Verse 4, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Keep your finger there. I'm going to pick back up, but I want to tell you something. When Jesus says, what did you go out and expect to see? A reed swaying in the wind? This would be very much like if somebody was reading a transcript of a conversation that Gabe and I were having. And it's a thousand years from now. So they're not as familiar with the culture. They don't know what's going on. And they heard us say something like, uh, make a reference to Star Wars. Now, Star Wars is a really popular thing in our culture right now. You know, we, all the movies are at the DVD places, all of those things. It's something that everybody here would understand. But a thousand years from now, they may have no recollection of. Well, he's referring to a story. An oak tree in the reed was a parable that you taught children in first century Israel. And here was the basic story without going into the long, drawn-out version of it. The basic part was that a reed would sway in the wind so it stood trials and tribulations because it bent to whatever force pushed on it. The oak could stand most trials and tribulations because it was strong and its roots went deep and it did not sway. 
But under enough pressure, the oak would break. It would have to give up its life because it would not bend. The idea was that you taught your children that people that swayed against pressure, whatever Patricia wants me to do, that I do. But if Brad wants me to do something else, that I do. Like hireling pastors in some of the denominational churches. Whatever the people want, let's just keep them happy. That's a reed in the wind. And Jesus is saying, what did you expect to see when you went out to see John? Did you expect some wishy-washy guy who flip-flopped like a windshield wiper? Of course not. You expected a prophet. You expected somebody who would stand for God and tell you the truth. That's what he's teaching. Now, listen how he picks up and builds upon that. And by the way, they all understood it when he just mentioned reeds swaying in the wind because it was a story they learned from childhood on up. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And now if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. He says that the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. This is something that people have had a real problem translating. That's how NIV says it. Anybody have a different translation in here? What do you have, brother? Read that. From the time of John the Immerser until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. Uh-huh. Yes, violent ones are trying to snatch it away. Okay, this is a translation by David Stern, right? That's right. the one I'm familiar with. Okay, He says the kingdom of heaven suffering violence, right? The problem is that when you're reading this in Hebrew, context is what deter- And I know it was written in Greek, but the people who wrote it were Hebrew. Okay, so let's get beyond which language we're talking about. The original text... Context has to determine what he's talking about. And people have translated this. King James translates it much like that. The kingdom of heaven suffering violence. What this is trying to promote, what this thought is, comes straight out of Micah. Okay? The Scripture always interprets itself if you understand the larger volume of Scripture. So we're going to turn to Micah. I'll read to you what it means to be forceful. Then we'll look at some other passages in the New Testament that build on the idea. If you're looking for Micah, you can find it on page 1032 in the Thompson chain. If you're not in the Thompson chain, you need to look between Jonah and Nahum. You can start in Matthew and turn back to your left several pages and you'll find it. We're going to be in Micah chapter 2. The idea is that the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of the kingdom. When you think of Christians, often the word meekness is confused with weakness. When I was talking with one of the brothers in a coffee house the other day, he was explaining the difference, and it's absolutely true. Meekness is not weakness. It's God's power under God's control. Jesus had all the power in the universe at His disposal. He just only used it as God told Him to use it. This is how the man can stand before Pilate and say, I have more than 12 legions of angels at my disposal but not use that power to save himself. Because it was not God's will that he save himself. It was God's will that he be crushed for our iniquities. Y'all in Micah? Micah 2. In Micah 2, starting in verse 12. Now, Micah is prophesying, by the way, around the time of Isaiah. In in the time of Hezekiah, uh, the king of Israel, somewhere around 740, 750 B.C. Okay? 250-some-odd years before... We really get into a Babylonian exile uh, 750 years before Jesus is even born. And listen to what he prophesies about. He says, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. 
I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord is at their head. So what on earth are we talking about? He's talking about a day when Israel, because he's already prophesied they would be scattered, he's prophesying that they would be regathered, that they would be like sheep in a pen, waiting for direction. And somebody would come and break through the gate to the pen. And then the king of the sheep would go out before them, leading the way into this new walk. Okay, that's what he's teaching. Now put that back in its context in Matthew 11. He said, what did you expect to see when you saw John? Then he prophesies about, or reads a prophecy about John. He says, he's like a messenger going, preparing the way before me. Then he speaks about the kingdom forcefully advancing and forceful men laying hold of it. You know what he's teaching? He's teaching that Israel had been gathered, they had been arranged by God, and now there was a way being broken open for them to follow if they were willing. But it took force. Have you ever seen... Uh, my, my father's here this morning, uh, Bobby. He had goats one time. And when you want to feed these animals, it's funny to watch because they all crowd into the little trough. And it's the strongest ones that get in there to eat first. All of the rest, he had this one named Slick Goat. And he was a little different than the other goats, right? So they all butted him and picked on him. And he'd be the last to eat if you weren't careful, okay? What, what he's describing is a narrow way that righteous people are forcing their way into and everything in the world is resisting them. And it takes a strength, something resolute, something determined to find its way to the righteousness. We're going to see this repeated over and over and over in the Bible. It's not that Christians are militant. It's not that the kingdom of God is violent. Nothing could be further from the truth. Does that describe Jesus at all? Not at all. This is a problem with our translation. The idea is that it is a determined force that happens. Turn with me back to uh, Matthew. We're going to go to Matthew 4. Let me tell you something about the kingdom and hopefully this will start to get clearer. Do you all understand the imagery of the sheep pen? Jesus another time says, hey, I have sheep not of this flock. Boy, the Mormons love that one. You know, they try to tell you that it's on the North American continent. How absurd. How absurd. But in any case, Jesus often sets himself up as a shepherd with followers as sheep. He does this because Israel's familiar with it. He tried to teach in ways that Israel would understand. One time Zechariah said, Don't you be scared. Don't you be scared, for I will be like a wall of fire around you in that day. He said, What on earth is that? What's God talking about? This is because the way these sheep pens work is you would find a hill with a cave. You would back all of your sheep into the cave. You would stack rocks then around the cave. Nothing gets through these rocks because you leave only a narrow opening except that it comes through the shepherd. And if the attack from the wolves or whatever else is there is so strong that they're going around the shepherd to other sides of the wall, what the shepherd would do was put thorns and thistles on top of the walls and light them on fire so that nothing could get through unless it came right over the shepherd. God was telling Israel, His people, during a time where tribulation was being prophesied, nothing will harm those that are dedicated to Me except that they come through Me. And we know that that can't happen. It's kind of like when Jesus is talking and He said, hey, the Father and I are one. Father's greater than everybody. And by the way, the Father and I, we're one. It's a roundabout way saying, I'm greater than everybody. Don't you worry about being snatched out of my hand. Nobody can take you. What, what these analogies are for is so that the very common people 
would understand. Are you all in Matthew 4? In Matthew 4, we're going to start in verse 17. I'm at 5.17. That's why I'm confused. Okay, 4.17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed Him. I want you to understand, what was Jesus preaching? It says He was preaching, the kingdom is near. The kingdom of heaven or of God is near you. Now this is different in their minds than it is ours. When you say kingdom, we think of geographical borders. We think of a monarch set up. We think of a specific language, a specific border designation, and a specific ethnic group. That's what determines countries or kingdoms to us. You know what determined a kingdom to a Hebrew? Anybody who submitted to the king's authority. If you were under the king's authority, you were said to be in his kingdom. didn't matter where you lived. didn't matter what kind of person you were. What Jesus is telling them is the kingdom of God is near you. Well, how do you step into something that's near you? You recognize who the king is. You live in his authority. Now, you couple that with what was going on in Micah. What was going on in Micah? He said, I'm going to show you somebody who will break through the way. Somebody who will open up a way for you and your king will walk through it before you, showing you how to walk. It takes forceful men to advance the kingdom of God who are willing not to listen to all the kingdoms around them, but only to the king's voice, the king of kings. That's a forceful man. And when John the Baptist came on the scene doing that, all Israel began to listen. They began to follow. And then their king, Jesus, walked it perfectly, showing us how to walk in the kingdom of God. It's near all of us. All you have to do is decide to be a part of it. He goes finds two fishermen, right? Didn't go anywhere else. Didn't go to the Pharisees of his day. Didn't, although many Pharisees got saved. He didn't go to the Sadducees of his day. Didn't go to the religious leaders. He went and found two fishermen. You'll find out when you study the character of each of the apostles that he called, there was something useful in it. When you hear James and John, does anybody know what they were called? Sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was their father. They had a nickname though. Sons Boanerges. Thunder. What does that sound like to you? Weak, timid little men? No. They were at least a little rowdy. When you hear about Peter... Uh, as a fisherman, and you hear his uh, life portrayed through the Scriptures, you see he's a little bit impetuous, isn't he? He's bold at times and often gets it wrong, but the man is willing. It takes a willing heart in the kingdom to do what God calls you to do. It takes somebody who is willing to be stubborn enough to do what He said do and listen to the King's voice, no matter whether the people around you understand or not. But He will break open a way for you. Jesus will make a way where there is no way. In Luke 16... We find this said in a different way. So turn with me to Luke 16. Now, if y'all don't turn your pages, my feelings will be hurt. I'll cry and run out of here. Yeah. I rarely lie when I'm preaching. If you don't want to turn, you, you don't have to. I'll just read to you. In Luke 16, starting in verse 16, you hear a parallel passage to the Matthew 11. 
Scripture always helps you to interpret Scripture if you'll read uh, everything that's going on surrounding it. It'll make it clearer for you. Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Well, what are you having to force against? Are you just like goats forcing against each other? No, you'll find out there's another force that opposes us. And we'll get to that. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And he goes on to teach about that. The kingdom of heaven has appeared. It's near. The people are able to see the king speaking about the principles of the kingdom. And then forcefully, the people are trying to be obedient to what's said. Well, what are you having to resist? What is the problem with the force? Well, before we get there, turn back to Luke 7 real quickly. Let's find out who was forcing their way in. In Luke 7, starting in verse 29, you see what kind of people forced their way in. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. In other words, there were people who were forcing their way in. What was restraining those that didn't? Pride. Pride. See, to get into this narrow way that you have to force your way into, there are two things that will restrain you. One is your own pride, your will for your life, your desires for your life that are contrary to the king's desires. These Pharisees, and not all Pharisees, but the ones that he's speaking about, rejected God's purpose for their lives, it said. In other words, the kingdom was near them. They could hear the king's voice saying, this is what you're to do. Follow and do like this. But they rejected that. So they were kept from entering in. They couldn't get through the very narrow way because there was too much self there. The second force that we'll see uh, uh, resisting here in a moment is called simply opposition. It's Satan. His name means the accuser and the opposer. He's the guy who opposes you. But before we get to that, I want you to hear something. Who did make it in? The common people. Even the tax collectors. Why would he point that out? These are people who had no problem seeing themselves as unrighteous and needing the king's voice in their life to show them the way to righteousness. The thing that keeps people from getting born again is that there's a way that seems right to them. And it's different than the way that God has prescribed. Proverbs speaks about this over and over and over. Two different ways. He says that there's a way that seems right to men and in the end it leads to destruction. Being in Christianity, listening to the king's voice, being a part of his kingdom means that you give up your right to be right. It doesn't matter whether you would like to be doing something different. You have pledged your very life to God to the point where Jesus said, if you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll gain eternal life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly or to the fullest. The paradox for people is it requires you to lay down your desires for your life to pick up that abundant life. Now, as Christians, most of us have decided to do that, right? You signed up for it. You saw the kingdom of God and said, my God, this is like a treasure in a field. I'll sell everything. I'll get rid of anything just to obtain that. And now that you've obtained it, you're walking in the kingdom. The trick is to keep that attitude. Because as God blesses you, as things come in your life, as you acquire a wife, 
as you acquire children, as you acquire a house, all of these things, all of a sudden you have treasure that is laid up that if you're not careful, is not in the kingdom of heaven. It might be here on earth. You know, it's harder for me to hear from God to totally lay down a job and walk in another direction knowing that I have children to provide for. That's more difficult. More is required of me. Why is more required of me? More has been given to me. See, that's how that works. But whether you have much or little, you have to make up your mind, come hell or high water, I will follow. We sing the songs, but you have to walk the walk. It takes a forceful man to do this. He said, well, are you talking about somebody who's carnal? No, the furthest thing from it. Somebody that with great force refuses to be carnal. Slap my face and what you'll get is love. Squeeze me and what will come out of me is Jesus. That's a forceful man. See, the world's idea of this Scripture is that Christians don't take anything from anybody. That Christians exert their will. They walk into Walmart and preach salvation to everybody and they have to live. That is not right. You do that, you have a six-month ministry and lose your head. I promise. John the Baptist had a unique calling. The previous one who had been like him was Elijah. Elijah lived in 900 B.C. John the Baptist in about 30 A.D. Between there, you don't hear about very many prophets with that particular ministry. You know? How many people stood on Mount Carmel and put to death 950 prophets to Baal? That was a unique calling in ministry. Our goal is to hold out life and do it in a forceful way. And the forceful way is refusing to conform to the image of this world, listening to your king and your king alone. Turn with me to John 5. And I promise I'll get to the other enemy in just a second. Actually, let's, let's go ahead and... Uh, hmm, let me tell you about it, and then we'll go to John 5. The kingdom of God's near, right? Do you all remember when Jesus sent out the 72? What did He tell them to do? He said, don't take any money with you. Don't take a sword with you. You need to go pronounce shalom bayit, peace to this house. If they receive your peace, then you dwell with them. If not, shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. They're not worthy of the kingdom of God. And what did He tell them to preach? Tell them to, he told them to preach the kingdom of God is near. Then heal their sick. Raise their dead. Do whatever you could do to bless them. This would show people the principles of the kingdom. That's what He taught. When the 72 got back, they were excited. you remember what they said? Anybody? Even the demons are subject to us, Lord. He looked at them. I... I Imagine in my mind with a great big smile, because the Bible says with joy. He said, don't you rejoice that the demons submit to you? Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. For I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now our theologians have taken that. They've paired it with Isaiah 14. And they've said, Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning back in Isaiah's day, 750 B.C. Friends, I don't think that's at all what he's saying. The kingdom of God had been near. Well, there are two kingdoms at war. There are two kingdoms at war on this earth right now. One is the kingdom of men ruled by Satan. He always has in his mind, Jesus said, the things of men. People that submit to that spirit, Ephesians 2 says, are a part of the prince of the power of air's kingdom. People that decide to listen to the king's voice and do so in great force against this other kingdom... They're in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. And this kingdom of light and darkness is even displayed in our creation. As we see darkness and then light and darkness and then light, over and over and over, that's supposed to show us of a struggle 
that is going on. This is how our very days are measured, the days of this struggle. Did you notice that in the creation, we started in darkness and God introduced light? God counts days from, light, uh, from darkness to light. We count them just the opposite in the Western world. We count them from light to darkness. It was the opposite with God and this is why. He saw a world covered in darkness that He was introducing light to transform it. The kingdom of God is near us. He's introduced it like light and it is transforming this dark world. So what did Jesus mean when He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning bolt? In my humble opinion, I believe that... Maybe not so humble. I believe that Jesus was praying the night before. That He was on a mountaintop praying for His disciples, working for them as they were going out and encountering, encountering these demonic spirits that submitted to them. As they were healing the sick and raising the dead. And each time the kingdom of God advanced in somebody's life, it was if Satan fell from their life like lightning. Where he had had complete dominion over an area, everybody under his control, now the kingdom of God had advanced in that area. People had rejected him as king and accepted the Messiah. And they were excited because it meant they had the benefits of the kingdom. That's how I see that. So you see this struggle that is going on. You have to be forceful against your own pride, your flesh that keeps you from wanting to enter into this ever-narrowing way. And you have an enemy that is always telling you, that's not the way this should be done. You can't really live like that in the business world. If you turn the other cheek, they're going to hurt you. If you serve your wife, she'll take advantage of it. The dishes will never get done. <laughs> He'll tell you all kinds of things. It's our job to reject that wicked counsel. It's our job to follow the leading of the Spirit. It's our job to commit ourselves wholly and forcefully to the kingdom. In John 5, we see a good example of this. Y'all with me still? Okay. I can always go get some more coffee if y'all are tired. <laughs> In John 5, you hear an almost pitiful story at first. But Jesus breaks open the way where there is no way. John 5, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. That's house of mercy. Uh, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there and had been an invalid for 38 years. In this condition for a long time and asked him, Do you want to get well? That's almost an insensitive question, isn't it? The guy's been here 38 years. It sounds insensitive, doesn't it? But you know what? There are people in this world that are so used to failure, they will cling to it. They're so used to the scars that are in their life that they nurse them to keep them there like a badge of honor. In the medical world, some therapists call that an identified patient. They've become a victim. That's all their role is left in this world. You want to see that on a global scale? Look at the Palestinian refugees. They're not refugees to start with. When you live in a place 50 years I would say you're no longer a refugee. When you've been offered permanent housing and yet you live in squalor on purpose, I would say that's no longer a refugee. But why do they do that? They're trying to show the world that they've been victimized by the Jews. It's not true. It's a lie of the enemy, but that's what they're trying to show. So Jesus asked this man, do you want to get better? Let's start there. <laughs> Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me when the pool 
uh, into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. What was the problem? The problem was as people were forcing their way into the healing waters, this guy didn't have the strength to get there. I know exactly what that's like. There are times in my life where I have not had the power to do the good that I wanted to do. When I was lost, I've told this story many times, I wanted to quit cursing because I knew that it was wrong. My friend and I decided that what we would do is every time one of us slipped and cursed, we would do push-ups. Five push-ups for each curse word. There are a couple of those curse words that probably deserve more than five push-ups. I got to where I could do hundreds of push-ups, but I could not quit cursing. James James defines sin as the good that you know to do and don't do. Well, I found myself in a position where I wanted to do better in life than I was doing for God. But I had no power to do it. But the God we serve will break open a way where there is no way. He will walk through that gate for you, showing you how to do it, empowering you, and then He put His very Spirit in you to give you the strength to do it. He's asking this man, do you want better than what you have? He says, yeah, but I can't. That's how all of us get saved. When you realize that you cannot on your own improve your situation. And then he says, hey, this is what you do. Told him. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Jesus showed this man, you don't have within yourself the power to improve your situation. But I'm going to speak to you about My kingdom because it's near you. And if you will be obedient to My Word, you will find the power that you lack. Immediately the man is cured. Now, this whole argument about faith and works, could the man work to get saved? No, it's very clear. He could not. He had been trying for 38 years. But as soon as he got cured, he picked up his mat and worked. (laughs) You can't work to get saved, but now that you're saved, you better be about the work of the kingdom. It was kind of a convicting thought for me yesterday in the coffee house. Y'all know that's like our Christian bar. We go hang out in the coffee house. We can drink we, coffee, and we can talk about, about Jesus there. So I looked around to these people that I was talking about. One worked at Papado's. One worked at Texas Land and Cattle. One worked in places that Matthew and I frequent quite often. And then it occurred to me, they all look familiar. They look familiar because they're in the kingdom to start with. They look familiar because I've been in these places. I wonder how many times the Lord was trying to get my attention. Go speak with that person. Go talk with them. There's a divine appointment that I have. Two of them had only been born again seven months. Seven months. Now they're doing great and I am proud. I'm excited about what's going on in their life. But I wonder whether I missed opportunities in the last seven months to have built in their lives. Praise God, though, He will break open a way where there is no way because I met them all in one day, in one hour. And God gathered them together. Two of them are here this morning. Isn't that awesome? Jesus will make a way for you where there was no way. You may have blown it yesterday. Make up your mind to get it right today so you didn't hear from God and do the thing you should have done on Monday. Praise God, it's a new day. It's Tuesday. Doubly blessed according to the juice. <laughs> uh, the dude got healed, right? Didn't even have to get into the water. He got healed. Go from there to Luke 13. I want you to hear Jesus' attitude. Then we'll get back into the Old Testament. In Luke 13, 
you hear that this thing requires effort. We're going to be in uh, verse 24. My wife sent me out to get milk last night. I came back about four and a half hours later and had almost forgot the milk. If I hadn't been talking to Matthew and Cassidy who reminded me that they were at a store, I would not have gotten that milk. Uh, It's good to be about the Father's business though, isn't it? The saddest moments in my life, the times where I have fought despair, come when I could not see that I was doing the Father's will. Now that's a whole other walk in faith. That's not an excuse to be in despair. One plants, one waters, God gets the increase. You're never promised to see success. You're promised that if you're obedient, God calls that success. Well, I, do, I want to do everything that I can to be on duty for God. Doing what God wants when He wants it. Listen to this. Verse uh, 24. Uh, actually, let's start in 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as He made His way to Jerusalem. Someone asked Him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? You'll take out your black highlighters. Mark that right out of your Bible. You know, people have this idea, God is a God of love. Everybody's going to be saved. This is not what the Scripture teaches. Not at all. And I want you to get the context here real quickly. He's speaking to a nation that had been called and adopted as sons of God. In other words, they were the equivalent of today's church-going people supposed to be in covenant with God. And listen to what he says. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Many will start this walk and they will not make it. Now, why didn't the Pharisees make it earlier? There was too much pride there. If you ever get to a place in your Christian walk where you're obsessed with something called the permissive will of God, which I think is really kind of a joke that theologians have made up, when you ever get to a place in your walk where you're trying to exert your will over God's will, you're on dangerous ground because you sold your life to Him the day you got saved. He said many would try, but would not make it. You know how else He said that? Many are cold, but few are chosen. He also teaches a parable about a wedding banquet. People that received an invitation showed up at a wedding feast, but were found to be inadequately clothed. The clothing is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, y'all can meditate on that some other time. We're going to concentrate on the more positive aspects this morning. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside, knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away with me, all you evil doers. Have you ever been talking with somebody and they say, hey, do you know Debbie? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know Debbie. Uh, well, I was with Debbie the other day, and uh, Debbie dunked a basketball. You said, you're kidding me. Debbie's like 5'5". Five, five. I said, oh, no, no, the Debbie, I'm talking about 7'2". Oh, that's a different Debbie. People talk about Jesus like this. They say they know Jesus, but when you get close to Him, the Jesus that they've embraced is a different Jesus than the one that you're familiar with. It's possible to know of God without knowing Him intimately. This word know is the same word that that the Bible uses in a much more graphic sense. Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. Now, did that literally mean he didn't know who she was? I don't think so. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what that means, right? 
Jesus is saying, get away from me, you evildoers. We were never intimate. You never took my will in your life like we were in covenant together. There will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from the east, the west, the north, the south and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Why would the first be taken and put at the end? Too much pride. Too much life. The cares and worries of this world, the pride of life, chokes out their life and they don't make it. But why are the last taken and made first? When you are lowly, when you are humble, when you were poor and didn't have anything except Jesus, He was all you had. He is all of your life. The goal is for God to not have to put you in those circumstances to get that result out of you. Wouldn't that be beautiful? But what I really wanted to get to is this next thing. It's Jesus' attitude. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to Him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Have you ever had the idea that all Pharisees were bad? In fact, we've almost used the word Pharisee as a synonym for hypocrite. Not so. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who got saved. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee who got saved. In Acts 15, there's a whole party of Pharisees who are saved and are in the church discussing uh, scriptural matters. Paul stood on trial and said, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Thirty years after the resurrection. It's wrong. Not all Jews were bad. Not even all the Jewish leadership was bad. As a nation, the lowly people flocked to Him. It was those who were in their positions of authority that loved their positions that would not. So they come and warn Him say, Herod, by the way, who's first, he's uh, a king there, a king appointed by the Romans, real wicked guy, uh, wants to kill you. I wonder why. Jesus was the real king. This guy was the counterfeit. When Jesus stood on trial with Pilate, He answered His questions. Did you notice that? you know who He never spoke to? Herod. When Herod asked Him questions, Jesus did not dignify it with a response. The man who was standing there had no authority from God. He had authority from a Roman Empire. The position that He held belonged to Jesus. That's why Jesus didn't even speak to Him. Here's what Jesus said. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. And he keeps going and says, you won't see me again until you hear blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His attitude when confronted with opposition, devilish opposition, that said, stop this. Stop this advancing of the kingdom. Is hey buddy, you kill that fox, I won't stop. I will not stop doing good. I will heal the sick. I will raise the dead. I'll keep going today, tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. This is the attitude of somebody who's born again. This is the attitude that says, when that doubt creeps up in you and says, oh, you can't quit this sin. You can't stop this. It's been there for a long time. You look right in its eye, figuratively. You say, oh yeah, Fox, I won't stop until I stomp you out. I'll stomp on you today. I will stomp on you tomorrow. And I will stomp on you the third day until I reach my goal. This forceful attitude that says, I will lay it all down for you, Jesus, is what brings the blessing of God in your life. God will make a way for you. 
He will make a way for you if you're just willing. If you just have an obedient heart. You know, I've used this example before, but I just want to use it again. Y'all let me do that? Y'all don't have back there a list of the examples and I check them off and can't ever... Yeah, Steve's got them. If I tell my wife... Not my wife. Let me pick somebody else. Because I'd like to sleep in my own bed tonight. If I tell Judah... <laughs> glad you're here, son. If I tell Judah... Son, I want you to go move that Suburban out there. And Judah says, okay, Dad. Runs out there and gets in a three-point stance. Sikes himself up. Says, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And runs and rams his head into the side of the door. And falls over. And then gets up. And I said, son, go move that Suburban. He gets in a three-point stance. Runs, runs, runs. Rams his head into the door. And the Suburban doesn't move. Was he disobedient? No. I was negligent in showing him how keys work, how a steering wheel works, how to back up the Suburban to move it. See, there are times that all God wants to see is a little effort in you, and then He will teach you how to move the Suburban. If you will just be willing to say, Lord, whether it's ram my head through a wall, whether it's lay down everything I have, whether it's be destitute, I don't care. I want Your will. He will show you the right way to do it. Now, in my ignorance, lots of times, figuratively, I've rammed my head against the Suburban. Sometimes it takes God a while to get through to this numbskull the right way to do it. But I would rather be guilty of trying to do it wrong but doing something than sitting on my salvation refusing to do anything. The difference between a sheep and a goat in the kingdom of God are those that are willing to try and those who failed to try. It's okay. God has all the mercy in the world. If Gabe sets out and says, I'm going to go win Mexico and then for some reason have to come back to the States. The world looks and goes, oh, he's a failure. It's not a failure. He tried. He got out of the boat. God can work with that. The person that sits at home and waits for everything to be worked out before they'll go is the failure. We need to get out of this attitude that waits for people to fail. You need to want them to succeed. Look at the potential in the people's lives around you. See people that way. This is a forceful man in the kingdom that will say, you know what? Eric's kind of an idiot. He doesn't speak very well. He's got these social deficiencies. But I can see that God is building something in him. I can see that God can use him. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have. That's forcefulness. That hears the voice of the enemy but discards it. Abraham was an old man but considered faithful. Romans 4, Romans 4 verse 13 teaches us about it. He says that Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, because He reasoned that what God promised, He was able to perform. See, I'm not asking you to stick your head in the sand and say that there are no problems, that it's not hard to do, that it can't be done. What I'm asking you to do is acknowledge those problems and then reason in your heart that if you will apply yourself and make effort to do it, God will cause it to get done. And you know what? It will. Even Abraham, way too old, he and his wife to have a baby, just reasoning in his heart, now, that's a project to work at, isn't it? <laughs> what old man wouldn't want to hear that? <laughs> you know, from God, I want you to work at this over the next 20 years. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's crass. Yeah, we got the newlyweds laughing back there. He reasoned in his heart that God could do it. And he did do it. You know what? People look at John Mark and say, wow, he turned back on a missionary trip. What a failure. I look at John Mark and see a man that wrote a book of the Bible. People look at Thomas and they say, Thomas the doubter. Thomas said that he wouldn't believe unless he put his fingers in the holes. 
and touch the side. And that's how Thomas is remembered. Thomas the doubter. Thomas is the first person in the New Testament to call Jesus both Lord and God. Why not remember Him that way? What's wrong with us? Why do we look around and when we see others that have tried and failed, why do we cast doubt on them? Why do we scorn them? They tried. What have you done for God this week? When did you get out of your comfort zone and try? I'm so excited. I've been talking with the Kenshins lately. They have got an awesome thing going in a school there. You know, some people say, oh, well, this or that or this. These people are trying with everything they have to do the will of God and they're succeeding. They're succeeding. You know why? Because my stepfather that I love with all of my heart refuses to give up. He's got this idea, I'm in the fourth quarter of my life and I will not quit. The fourth quarter must be stronger than the first three. We'd all do well to adopt that kind of attitude. Amen. You know, can you point to things in their lives or my life or anybody else's life that's not perfect? Of course you can. But what I want to override all of that is I refuse to quit. I will be forceful about grabbing the things in the kingdom and not letting them go. Yes. As if your life depended upon it, hang on to it. Say, so, well, what kind of people does God call? This is funny. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. But we're going to be in 1. 1 Samuel 22. In 1 Samuel 22, I just want to read to you a couple verses. Starting in verse 1. If you're in the Thompson chain, this is on page 324. If not, I hope you listened when I went from Genesis to 1 Samuel, so you know where it's at. Verse 1, David went to Nob, to uh, Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him. I'm sorry, I'm in 21, I meant to be in 22. <laughs> A little help from my friends out there, guys. You pay attention. <laughs> yeah, I told you 22 and started reading in 21. Y'all just figured that's normal for me, right? Uh, chapter 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were, get this, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. I want you to get this. David was prophesied to be the king of Israel. At 30 years old, he was anointed over Hebron, called king of Israel. And yet all Israel was not subject to him. He was nearly 40 years old when he became king of all of Israel. Jesus has been anointed as king of Israel by God Himself. And yet not all of Israel has come to Him yet. In fact, the wedding invitation went out and because those whom it was intended to receive didn't come, he's turned to the blind, the crippled, the beggars. You know who that is? That's you and me. All of us who were discontented with the way our lives were going in this world, those that were in debt that we couldn't get out of, those whose dreams had been broken because we heard that there was a man who could take your ashes and do something beautiful with them. Somebody who could take away your garment of despair and give you a garment of joy. We heard that there was somebody who would take those who were broken and downcast and raise them up. Take a crippled guy like Mephibosheth and feed him at the king's table all the days of your life. That doesn't mean that the promise won't be for all of the others too. David became king over all Israel, but he started with people just like you and me. We're in a time of warfare. David was a warrior king. He didn't build God's t 
temple that was permanent because he was a warrior king. He was a man of blood. His son, however, was a man of peace and a man of wisdom and built the permanent dwelling for God on earth. At least that's what it was in shadow and type. So, said, well, what on earth are you talking about? We live in a day that is like David's tabernacle days. Joyful praise is going out for the earth for all of the nations to see. He's calling the blind, the crippled, the beggars, those discontented and indebted to Himself, that's us, so that the rest of the nation will see God is with us and they will flock to Him. The age to come, when we see King David again, it will be, in type, I'm speaking of Jesus, it will be like Solomon. He will come to usher in an age of peace with the permanent dwelling of God being on earth, a millennial reign. You can see this throughout the Scripture, anywhere you're willing to look, but it starts with people like you and me who have forced our way into the kingdom. It wasn't even made for us, but we have forced our way in because we'll lay down our lives and take up His. Isn't that awesome? Boy, I'm, we're those whom the fulfillment of the ages has come upon. What a high calling to walk in. Y'all turn with me to Isaiah. I was thinking about Isaiah today. Uh, because one of the young men that I was talking to last night uh, had been reading Isaiah. And we're going to be on page 803 in the Thompson chain, Isaiah 42 for the rest of you. And I'd start with Genesis and go to Isaiah, but I'll run out of breath before I get there. Let me read you some verses from Isaiah. We've got about eight more minutes. If you guys can hang in there with me, I, I promise you'll learn something in the last few minutes. Isaiah 42, we're going to start in verse 1. Hey, something I'm not going to read to you this morning, by the way. Look at Isaiah 49 sometime. Isaiah 49 teaches that God will bring the nation of Israel back into their own land on the shoulders of Gentiles. Now, you look at what's happened in the last 20, 30, 40 years, and you know what you see? Gentile finances, Gentile airplanes, and Gentile nations helping the Jews get back to their own land. He saw that in 740 B.C., Say, well, it happened under Cyrus. It happened at a different... Yeah, it happened then and it happened now. It's double reference. It happens all the time in the Scriptures. Chapter 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Nations there is goyim. It's Gentiles. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That speaks of gentleness, doesn't it? But watch, he'll move on to forcefulness. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. If you lived in Israel, which was the center of the world, this little country right off of the Mediterranean Sea, what would be islands? Those are the continents. Those are the other continents in the world. He's speaking about places like America, places like South America. From their perspective, we were islands, distant lands that you crossed a sea to get to. This is what God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes of it. He who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. 
I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. To release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. In 740 B.C., God began to announce that He was going to do something among the Gentiles, the crippled, the poor, the lame. So that when it happened, you could look back and say, He declared it and it came to pass. There is no God like Him. It does not matter what God's called you to do. He will break open a way for you to do it. And the more impossible it looks, you just write it down, my friend. Because one day you'll be able to look back and say, He announced it beforehand. And look, it's come to pass. And who would have thought? Gabe carries in his wallet a receipt where something's written. And it's written on the receipt so that one day when it comes to pass, he will know God declared it in advance and it has happened. Isaiah did the very same thing. These are what were written on the scrolls to encourage faith in the people. When it happened, Paul picks up on this and he says, everything that happened to Israel was written down as an example for you on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. This was to encourage you that when you stood and faced a wall, you said, I serve the kind of God that can break it open. He'll go through it for me. He will show me the way. Pick back up in Isaiah, start in verse 12. Think Isaiah 12. Yeah, 12. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim His praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a mighty man. Like a warrior, He will stir up His zeal. With a shout, He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over His enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out. I gasp and pant. I will lay waste to the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do, for I have not forsaken them." Israel is not forsaken and we as a people are not forsaken. God goes before us though it looks like He's been silent for a time, inactive for a time. There is a day when He will stir Himself on your behalf like a warrior and go out and battle on your behalf. Though His promise to you lingers, wait upon it, for it surely shall come to pass. He announced it in advance so that when it does happen, you can say, the God I serve sees decades, even centuries, in Israel's case, thousands, millennia ahead of me. And look how great he is. This ought to encourage faith. You wait on a husband. You wait on a child. You wait on a job, a spouse to come into the faith. If God spoke to you, it shall surely come to pass. He is the kind that says, I will make a way where there is no way. Your job is to be forceful enough to grab that promise, to hang on to it, to not waver, to refuse to let it go. You treasure it up in your heart. Don't give up. Jesus taught parables and He taught them for the purpose, Luke said in Luke 18, of teaching them to pray and not give up. The problem with the charismatic community is that we hear from God. And when we don't like what's happening, we say we heard from God in some other direction. We dig up in doubt the very seed that we have thrown in faith. 
Can you imagine? Could you, Matthew planted a garden recently. Can you imagine if every day he went out there and said, I don't see any growth, and he dug it up and planted it in a new place? Christians sometimes are so flaky. Man, hang on to the promise of God. Be a forceful man. Refuse to move. Stand in the gap and follow your King. He will come through for you. In Isaiah 45, which we have to read before leaving Isaiah. I'm running out of time. But you just This is one that you can't read the book of Isaiah and not know. I know this is not a history class, but I just want you to hear it. There were four major kingdoms that have ruled the earth. Babylon was one. The Medo-Persian was the second. The Greek was the third. And the Roman Empire was the fourth. Each one led and prepared the way for the others. The Bible teaches us in Daniel, teaches us in Ezekiel, teaches us in so many of the minor prophets that these four kingdoms would rule the earth followed by the kingdom of God. You say, but wait a minute, the Romans have come and gone. I don't believe so. I see their influence everywhere. There's even this thing that they call the church that wears the name Roman that has a seat in the United Nations. Okay, I don't believe the spirit of Rome has gone, but that's another Bible study. Okay, The kingdom of God is the next kingdom to take over the whole earth. That's what the Bible teaches us. While Israel had not yet been sent to captivity in Babylon, they're still a sovereign nation. They're 250 years away from going to captivity. God not only tells them that they're going into captivity, but tells them which king of which nation will pronounce their freedom and take them out. Why does He do this thing? He announces ahead of time so that when it happens, it builds the faith of people. You know what we do today? We read and go, oh, this had to have been inserted later. We read it and say, somebody must have written this in the text later. No. Isaiah wrote this down before it happened so that when it happened, our faith would be encouraged. Listen, verse 45. We're going to only read five verses and then I'll get to something else. This is what the Lord says to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before Him and to strip kings of their armor. Cyrus was the name of the Medo-Persian king that first issued a decree for people to leave Babylon and go back to their homeland. What is so amazing about that? if they haven't even been put in captivity in Babylon yet. That didn't happen until 586 B.C. We're in 740 B.C. here. I would say that's foresight. If you can learn to trust God that He can see a little further than you can, then it's not hard to trust Him for the promises. You just believe He can see something you can't see yet. That's why you walk by faith and not by sight. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, O Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. Get this, though you do not acknowledge me. Cyrus was never a believer. Cyrus was not a member of the nation of Israel, not a Christian, not even a good man. But God says, I'm going to anoint him for this purpose. I'm going to call him. I'm going to announce him in advance for the sake of my people. Now, if God will do that for the wicked, what do you think he'll do for the righteous that do bear his name? For those who have been bought by his very blood. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from Me, there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged Me. So that from the rising of the sun to the setting 
to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. He goes on to teach that He does it so that salvation will spring up in the nation of Israel. He's working on our behalf. If He has to send a raven, an unclean bird, with food in its mouth to feed a ritually clean Jew named Elijah, He'll do it. He will provide for you any way that it takes if you're just committed to Him. There's two things that I want to share with you and I'm over time, so you just have to trust me. In Matthew 27, we see a really unique thing happen. Jesus is on a cross and He cries out in a loud breath, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? A confusing Scripture to be sure at first glance. This was the first time in Jesus' life where He referred to God, speaking personally to Him as God and not His Father. First time in His life He felt separation from the Father. This is because He who knew no sin was made to be sin for you. That's why that happened. Now here's what's interesting. For the first time in Jesus' life, He was separated from the presence of God. Okay? Hemmed in, if you will, by sin and death. But He didn't stay there. In fact, it was not long after that that the earth shook, the ground broke open, and the bodies of many righteous men came out of the graves, and the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That's Matthew 27:51. Why was that shown? Why did that happen? Why, why would the Gospel contain something so unusual? Because Jesus is the kind of God that went into trouble for you First time in his life he had ever been separated from the Father and then broke his way out so that he showed it by the tearing of a veil that separated people from God's presence. By the opening of graves, death had separated people from God as well. Showing that bodies were raised from the dead by his strength, by his power, and that the way into the very presence of God had been opened by him. He is the God who makes a way where there was no way. That curtain stood there in opposition to you that said, you are not holy enough to enter this place. This is the most holy place and only God is here. Graves with people in there were marked. These people are dead and cannot live again. And Jesus went into the place of death and took people out of it. And He went outside of the presence of God to tear the curtain and show a way back into the presence of God. Whether we're speaking of the depths of the earth in death, or we're talking about the depth of sin. Jesus has been there to pull you out of it and has made a way where there is no way. Now friends, He picked fishermen for a reason. We need to stop boat riding on the Sea of Humanity. Stop just glancing by out of our cars at people. Stop passing people in Papados. Stop passing people at the coffee shop. Stop passing people at Panera Bread. And start looking for the opportunity to impact somebody's life. He didn't call us to boat ride on humanity. He called us to fish for men. You know in that parable of the guy who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, the priest and the Levite passed him on the other side of the road. It took a lowly Samaritan to help that guy out. Guys, you've been trained like Levites, like priests. You've been given much. Much more is required of you than is required of the Samaritans. Don't let a Samaritan take your high calling in Christ. You be the one 
I told you earlier in this message, I've probably missed the guy at Texas Land and Cattle. I've been there many times and have never talked to him. I've probably missed the guy at Papado's. I probably missed the girl at Panera Bread. I go to all of those places and it never occurred to me that God might have somebody in there of divine appointment. And His mercy brought them all to me in one day at a coffee shop. I love His mercy. It triumphs over judgment. But let's not abuse it. Don't make Him bring them to you. You go find them. Have your head on a swivel. Look to do the will of God wherever you go. Like Philip the Evangelist, be looking for the Ethiopian eunuch. Listening for the Spirit of God so that when you hear it, you run to do His will. Because He called you to be fishers of men and He will make a way for you where there is no way. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.